Welcome to Global Dispatches. This is your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. Great show today. Erica Chenoweth is on the line. She's an academic who's produced some groundbreaking research on the utility of nonviolence as a tactic in protest movements to overthrow regimes. You'll hear a lot about this research in the upcoming conversation, but the bottom line is that according to the data that Chenoweth has compiled, nonviolent movements are twice as likely to succeed as movements that employ violence. The data and conclusions are all in the book, Why Civil Resistance Works, The Strategic Logic of Nonviolence, which she wrote with Maria Stefan. I caught up with Erica Chenoweth in her office at the University of Denver, and we had an excellent conversation not only about her research, but how she came to this field of political science and international relations, and how growing up in the town of Dayton, Ohio, inspired her to a career in international relations. Here it is, my conversation with Erica Chenoweth at the University of Denver. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. But my understanding is that certainly Tunisia is the most promising case of the so-called Arab Spring or Arab Awakening cases. Um, and it's no accident. I think that it also happens to be the one that was featured the highest level of kind of nonviolent discipline, organization, um, and is most... Uh, closely um, related to many of the the nonviolent campaigns that we looked at in our historical data. So what are the uprisings you're looking at right now? Um, Well, I'm paying attention to Burkina Faso uh, that just uh, started up a couple days ago. Um, And I'm certainly keeping my eye on Hong Kong. um, And... You know, there's still some rumblings of activity in places like Russia uh, mm-hmm. that had its snow revolution that was, of course, a failure, but um, there's still some activism happening there, especially as there's divergence of opinion about the righteousness of the um, Russian support for the Ukraine rebels. Uh, so let's talk about Burkina Faso. So mm-hmm. um, Blaise Compore, the mm-hmm. uh, president of Burkina Faso, has been there for something like 27 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, we're speaking like a day after these huge uprisings in Ouagadougou, like mm-hmm. sort of, I don't know if they're unprecedented because there's been sort of protests mm-hmm. in Burkina Faso and Ouagadougou before, um, but what sort of sticks out to you about the situation of Burkina Faso? Like, what are you looking for? Well, certainly the size of the protests is a hallmark of a campaign that maybe has some more widespread uh, support. Uh, certainly it has um, maybe more diverse uh, support than, it, than, than similar protests have had in the past. And the other thing is just that, um, you know, size is the single most important feature of uh, increasing the probability of success for a nonviolent uprising. So if you get hundreds of thousands of people, which is what's being reported here, and that continues and starts even to grow further, then it puts, puts a campaign like that in a much higher uh, probability set of winning in the end. 
And I think your research says something like if 3% of the population uh, participates some way in a protest, its probability of success increases like exponentially. Yeah, if you're, if you're talking about the cases in our data, which were from 1900 to 2006, the, at least the anti-dictator uh, campaigns, uh, those that featured participation above 3.5% always succeeded. So in that time period, there was 100% probability of success during that time. And what about like in a, you know in a case like Blaise Compaore, who is like you know has dictatorial tendencies, but is um, I guess technically an elected leader, mm-hmm. um, and sort of I think the the protests have been sparked by his decision to try to change the constitution so he can seek yet another you know term in office. So it's not you know he's not like a your traditional autocrat. Does like the level of autocracy? I don't know if that's a term mm-hmm. of art in in international relations, but does that influence like mm-hmm the um, probability of success of these nonviolent revolutions? Interestingly, it definitely affects the probability of having one, um, but it doesn't actually determine success rates. So in other words, if you're more autocratic, you're more likely to have one of these campaigns. Um, But from there, the level of autocracy doesn't influence whether campaigns win or lose, which is very interesting. Um, So in other words, they they tend to win kind of in all kinds of different contexts. And there's no uh, structural factors that we've found to predetermine whether they win or not. It's more about movement size, um, the ability to create defections within the ruling elite, uh, and staying power. I guess, why do you think that is, that the, the, the level of autocracy is not uh, relevant necessarily? Well, I think it's relevant in explaining where these campaigns set on, um, because uh, it's cases like this where you're more likely to have a shared set of grievances, more widely distributed across the entire population, regardless of politics or class. Um, but in uh, not helping to understand when they win or lose, I think this is actually a huge challenge for the field of political science, which usually thinks of institutions and structures as being the most important thing in understanding kind of human behavior and outcomes of it. And in fact, um, the thing about nonviolent uprisings is that they often depend much more on kind of human creativity, innovation, and the ability to surmount adverse conditions. Um, so in fact, it, it, it's much more related to the movement's capacity uh, to maneuver around repression, uh, to build a widespread and diverse set of participants, um, and to uh, kind of forge links to elites in ways that can pull them away um, from supporting the status quo. And those are all related to kind of skill um, much more than, than the environmental conditions. What are some examples of, of creativity um, that you would cite? That kind of stick out as being like this. This is a tactic that that worked in the situation and was, you know, kind of sort of ingenious. Um, one of my favorite examples actually comes out of Western Sahara, where um, you know, if you're can you before we yeah, go in there, can you sure. like explain for those who are not intimately familiar with yeah. uh, the politics of Western Sahara what the uprising was and, and sort of what the you know set the context? Sure. Um, this is part of a. This includes me, by the way. Oh, okay. I, I, I know nothing <laughs> of Western Sahara. Yeah. So Western Sahara <laughs> is basically. Um, de facto has been annexed by Morocco. So uh, there's been a a military occupation there that's basically turned into Morocco subsuming Western Sahara. And uh, there is an independence movement there that has 
you know, failed so far. Um, there, a lot of people are familiar with the Polisario Front, um, which is a violent manifestation of this. But actually, um, lately, there's been much more um, widespread nonviolent mobilization um, by Sawaris. So that is the context, the Western Saharans. Right, okay. Yeah, so, so basically, um, it's, it's a, there's a lot of uh, kind of censorship and clamping down on, um, on different symbols or forms of expression related to independence. For instance, wearing uh, the Western Saharan flag um, would be illegal. You'd, you'd be re repressed or arrested for doing that. Um, so the Sawari uh, activists announced that they were going to hold a demonstration um, in, the, in a very uh, public place and that they were going to fly the flag. And they were announcing this in advance. And so the Moroccan stormtroopers sort of show up to repress it. And instead, what they'd done is rounded up a bunch of the stray cats from the area and they'd tied the flags onto their tails um, so there were no activists, but they released these cats in these squares, which, you know, there, there were all these alleyways and everything. So the cats are running all over the place. And the police then are in their, like, stormtrooper gear running after these cats. And Looking like dunces. Exactly. So, so I think that that's a really good example of what you might call a dilemma action, which is that um, it always puts the opponent in a position of, having a total dilemma, which is, well, we can just let these cats run free, but then the flag's going to be everywhere and we show that we're incapable of defending our own laws, or um, we can chase the cats, you know, and we can look like a bunch of dunces, like you said. Um, so the, like, yeah. so seemingly not dissimilar to, like, civil rights tactics in the 1960s mm -hmm. in the U.S., where, you know, the, the, you know, the civil rights leader would put, like, children, you know, at the front mm -hmm. of, of uh, protests, and so the police would be forced... To like decide, are we gonna let this protest mm -hmm. happen? Are we gonna disperse them with water cannons or arrest them? And mm -hmm. they end up like hitting a lot of children with water cannons and arrest a lot of children. Right. Yeah. I, I think that a lot of times the use of humor works in a way better than the use of, um, you know, uh, human okay. shields. Um, what are so some to other speak. good humor examples? Um, you know, the the you might be familiar with the Femen protesters. Um, they're Ukrainian uh, women, actually, who uh, they would right, be like the nude. Naked. Yes. Yeah, yeah. This is a real dilemma action because police officers manhandling nude women in public isn't exactly making for good optics. Mm -hmm. And uh, you can sort of see the pictures of um, Russian police trying to arrest these women, and they're looking away while they're touching them. And, and then you get this photograph of this police officer kind of, you know, looking away from it and uh, feeling really uncomfortable and feeling embarrassed that, you know, this photo might make it on the news. So using these types of popular symbols, but that also would make people laugh, I think, are, are ways that pull more people into a movement. And that's the key is enhancing participation uh, rather than driving people away. I remember like the elbow licking protests of Sudan uh, a right. few years ago where students, obviously, you know, the joke is you can't lick your own elbow. Right. Um, <laughs> uh, interesting. So uh, humor is a tactic. What, I, I guess, are there other sort of creative examples of creativity or other, you know, maybe like less humorous, maybe more mm -hmm. dangerous that, that come out? Well, certainly in most of these contexts, it's highly dangerous what they're doing anyway. Um, uh, most of the people are going to be very exposed to risk, especially because civil resistance is a deliberately public and visible activity. So there's some time for clandestinity, but mostly people are showing their face, you know, out in public. And in a lot of contexts, it's very dangerous. 
Um, but I think that um, another really creative method I've heard from the Serbian case, uh, the Otpor movement that removed Milosevic in 2000, um, alongside a, a coalition of, of opposition parties, um, they found a way to sort of manage violence within the movement. So uh, if there were people that came to try to provoke violence against police, for example, uh, they had a technique of having marshals uh, surround the person, like in large numbers, and sort of move them out from the protest. And they'd have all these taxi cabs lined up, and they would just put the person in the cab and ask them to drive them 10 miles away. So, you know, this is a, a thing that has really come up for a lot of movements lately is that, you know, provocateurs or people that are part of an otherwise family-friendly demonstration um, often make it much more risky for people to participate. So coming up with these really clever ways of minimizing the political impacts of those things, I think, are really useful as well. So I'm curious to know, like, how you came to this field. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, where, I guess, what was your first interaction with the idea that sort of nonviolence could be, you know, has like their strategic logic to nonviolence. Yeah, I I actually was first introduced to the topic at a workshop uh, that I attended in 2006. It was put on by the International Center on Nonviolent Conflict, which is an educational foundation um, that disseminates knowledge on nonviolent action. So and like Peter Ackerman? Is yeah, that, Peter yeah, Ackerman, Jack okay. Duvall, um, mm -hmm. and a number of other people that have, you know, studied it over the years. Um, They've had some association in the past, uh, just personally with Gene Sharp, um, but they're separate who's, who's, who's from. Who's Gene Sharp? Gene Sharp is the. Um, a lot of people call him the father of of the field of strategic nonviolence. Uh, he wrote a very influential uh, three volume text called "The Politics of Nonviolent Action" back in 1973, and out of it he identified 198 uh, tactics of nonviolent action or methods mm -hmm. of nonviolent action. Um, that is widely cited by many activists around the world as um, being inspirational to them. Um, and uh, so, you know, the people that have basically been studying this for decades uh, weren't getting too much notice about it, I think, uh, until really the color revolutions and then the Arab Spring, of course, really reinforced that. Um, but I think my own uh, introduction to it was reading Sharp and, and Ackerman and Duvall's book, A Force More Powerful, and a few other academic books by people like Kurt Schock. And they were all making this argument that nonviolent resistance could be as effective or even more effective than violent resistance. And I, I was just totally dubious of the claim and didn't think it was fully demonstrated. And so I, I had been uh, trained as a kind of traditional mainstream political scientist. Mm -hmm. All of my interests were in trying to understand violence. Um, and so I was really like bothered by this mm -hmm. claim. <laughs> and I thought it was probably naive and ideologically motivated, you know, like they were pacifists or something. So they yeah. wanted it to be supportive of their argument. And I, I was wrong about that. That's an assumption a lot of people make um, about this field. But basically, I, I went to this workshop and like argued with people for a while about it. And then this woman, Maria Stefan, who was there, she at the time was the educational outreach person for ICNC. And she and I had this like late night argument in our um, room that we were sharing at the, at the dorm at the university where this was being held. And um, basically was she said, you know, are you curious enough to actually do a study on this? Do you want to know the answer? Or are you just going to like argue about it? So that's how the study came about actually was kind of like an intellectual dare. You know, I was like a peace studies major back mm. way back when in the day um, before this actual data you know was there. And there was like you know I think an intuitive um, appreciation 
for the conclusion that you reach, you know, that, that you know, nonviolent tactics are, you know, more likely to succeed than violent tactics. Um, but there was just no data set, and there was no, like, it was not, like, an empirically provable claim at that time. Or right. it was, I guess, supposedly provable, but no one had done what you did and actually proved in it. But, mm-hmm. gosh, that would have been, like, very useful <laughs> 15 years ago for me. Um, so uh, let's just uh, take a step back. So uh, where are you from? Well, I grew up in two places, Dayton, Ohio, and Santa Fe, New Mexico. Sounds military. It was actually, a lot of people think that, okay. but uh, there's another kind of uh, parental profession that does that, and that's music. Oh. Uh, so my, my parents played in the Santa Fe Opera Orchestra. Oh, nice. My dad taught at the University of Dayton during the year, and they played in the Dayton Philharmonic and Dayton Opera Was as he well. like a music professor? Yeah. He, oh, wow. he plays the French horn, the and French my mom horn. plays the flute. Oh, wow. Yeah. Are they still, do they, like, tour together? Um, they are both retired from playing now. Okay. So, but but uh, we would relocate every year between the two places. And did, did you go to high school in both Dayton and Santa Fe? I went in Dayton, but then, uh, you know, basically three to four months of the year, we would go to Santa Fe. So I usually um, would often miss the end of school and the start of school uh, <laughs> from being in Santa Fe. Were you in Dayton in 1995? I was. Okay. That yes. was for those. That was a reference to the Dayton Accords. Uh, in fact... Um, <laughs> so what was that like? It, it's very interesting. It's what got me interested in studying violence, actually. Oh, wow. it was, uh, I was really coming of age, reading the, the front page of the Dayton Daily newspaper and, and reading about the peace accords and uh, the, the conflict, actually. And I'd read this book my mom brought me called Zlata's Diary. It was the book by Zlata Filipowicz. The, I, remember, I yeah. remember hearing, what is that yeah. book? I remember like, knowing of that book. Yeah, people called her the Anne Frank of Sarajevo. Yeah, She's the right, Bosnian right. Serb girl, yeah. So I, so I uh, read this book, and we, Zlata Filipowicz and I are exactly the same age. So it was really moving to read a kid's diary who was my age talk about war. And uh, then Dayton Peace Accords happened, and... I went to the University of Dayton for undergrad, and they had all these implementation workshops, and I, I was a driver. I volunteered to drive the delegates, which is totally weird because I'm like this college kid, and I have three presidents in the back of my yeah. like Cadillac. Who did you, know? you, do you have any memorable uh, chauffeur yeah. Uh, stories? Yeah, I had the president of Montenegro at one point, and the president of Macedonia, and the prime minister of Serbia all in my car at the same time. They got along? Um, no they, yeah, they the were car. getting along fine. Yeah. One of them had been, there had been an assassination attempt while he was leaving to come to uh, the workshop. So he was like in a neck brace and was like recovering from this oh bullet wound. It was bizarre. And actually Zoran Jinjic was there. Um, I drove him around. He, of course, he was, was a Croatian. He was a Serbian. Um, okay. Yeah, he was a, a Serbian opposition candidate who ended up winning and, and becoming the, the president, I think. Um, but he was assassinated shortly after that. Yes, I okay, yeah. I yeah. So it, it was bizarre. I, I, I entered, I, I, my, there was this concert at the Dayton Philharmonic that was like a joint concert between the Sarajevo Symphony and the Dayton Philharmonic. And all of the delegates came to, to watch the, the concert. They did Beethoven's Fifth. Were your, your parents playing it? They were playing. And so we go to the after party where they have all of the musicians and then all of the delegates. And I'm like introducing my parents to the president of Bosnia and all this stuff. It was, they were very impressed. My parents were. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. What a good story. Um, yeah. So, uh, and did you, uh, you went to the, uh, what did you study as an undergrad? Political science and German. Okay. Did you yeah. know you wanted to be an academic pretty early on? I didn't. I was really not sure. Uh, I was very interested in diplomacy, and I thought maybe I would uh, be more of a practitioner. 
but I have always felt a great kind of appeal for analysis and inquiry and sort of knowledge production. So when I went to get my PhD, I, I left it open and I said um, that I'd take my first field as international relations, my second field as policy, just in case I ended up wanting to leave with a master's or with a PhD, but go into the policy world. Mm-hmm. Um, and anymore, actually, I feel like I have the best of all worlds because I do, you know, I do my academic work, but I also am, I talk a lot with, with public audiences and with policy audiences or with activist communities. And I feel like I, my, my policy background has really uh, lent itself well to at least interpreting, uh, you know, research results for non-academic audiences. And where did you go to, uh, where did you get your PhD from? Like, where did you go to grad school? CU Boulder. Okay, not mm-hmm. too far. Yep. Yeah. Um, and do they have, like, in, in the international relations field, they have a pretty strong program there? Yeah, uh, they, they do well with academic placements. Mm-hmm. It's much less common for students to go there and to want to go into practice. Um, but, uh, when I was there, there was still a pretty robust policy program. So I felt like I did get some policy analysis tools under my belt. And what was your PhD focus, the nonviolence issues or did you, no, what, not the at opposite all. of that? And the opposite. Okay. Yep. The opposite. I was, I was studying violence and I was, my dissertation was on why, uh, terrorism happens so much in democratic countries. Okay. What year, uh, like, like are we talking about? I defended in 2007. Okay, so um, what did you conclude, or why did you pick that topic? I guess what what, what drew you to yeah, that? Yeah, it was weird. I was I was actually initially provoked by an op-ed that was in some newspaper by someone de- defending the Bush Doctrine, and they were arguing that democracy is the best way to reduce terrorism worldwide. Yeah, who wrote it? I can't even remember oh, okay. honestly. Um, but that was like part of the conventional wisdom in the policy world in the mid 2000s. Yeah, I mean, so. it was also like the strategic, you know, underpinning of like why, you know, the Bush decided to invade and occupy Iraq, right? Exactly. But what would always come out of that is look, in the long term, it's going to be better if, you know, countries in the Arab world are democratic because then there's going to be less terrorism. And I was like, I don't know if that's even right, like if, if, if terrorism is even less common in democracies. Uh, so I started doing this, um, you know, just kind of research on it where I would just do this, the straight correlation. And it turned out that democracies actually have more terrorism than non-democracies. Where do you get the data from? Um, from I got it from a couple places. So the, the democracy data we I got from the Polity Project, which is a, a very kind of um, large project that's well supported and well well respected in political science that just measures different indicators of democracy. And then the terrorism data I got both from the RAND MIPT data set, the ter- terrorism knowledge base, um, which was collected by RAND and housed at the, 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 um, um, the sort of terrorism memorial project in, in Oklahoma City. And then um, ultimately the global terrorism database, which was developed out of um, the University of Maryland. And that catalogs terrorist incidents. So it turns out that democracies have more terrorism. They have less things like civil war, um, but they don't have less terrorism. Is like the is it a dramatic difference? Yeah, I mean, certainly, as it, especially between like the 1970s, 1980s, it's a really dramatic difference. I mean, there was way more terrorism in Western democracies than in any other part of the world. Like, I'm thinking like kind of random separatist groups, like the like. Quebec liberation movement or like the, um, 
or domestic terrorists in the United States, those mm-hmm. things yep. sort of all count towards the data. Yeah, and there were larger uh, kind of Marxist-inspired movements, especially right. during the 70s and 80s. So Latin America, yeah, that, exactly. Yeah. It was like a separate yeah. age. But, you yeah. know, if you said terrorism in the 80s, most people would think of like the Red Brigades yeah. or the Red Army faction. They would yeah. not be thinking of that. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and so, like, why do you think that is? Like, why... Yeah, so so most people, when I tell them this, they're like, well, duh, it's just easier in democracies. Um, so people will go where it's easy to do uh, violent acts. And actually, I find that that's not really true. In democracies, we have a couple of um, reasons why we're not the most hospitable places. The first is that there's widespread legitimacy usually for the government. So you're much less more likely to run into somebody who will tip off the authorities as to your existence if you're a terrorist. Um, and then the second thing is just that democracies um, because precisely because they have all kinds of nonviolent institutions for seeking redress, the public is generally very has very low tolerance for terrorism, meaning that when it happens, they're completely supportive of the government circumventing all kinds of civil, civil liberties to crack down on the people. Like they're okay with torture, they're okay with um, you know extrajudicial law. detention, yeah. all that kind of stuff. So actually, it turns out that a better explanation is just the fact that democracies feature such a high level of pluralist activity that there's just so many people with so many issues it puts a lot of pressure just on the agenda and and on the ability of the government to sort through issues and and uh, come up with different um, kind of policies that are kind of beneficial for the larger public and the other thing that it does is it increases all kinds of other contentious politics so we have more protests in democracies we have more strikes in democracies um, than than in authoritarian regimes, and the consequence of that is that um, you know again there's more pressure, but there's all you also have to sort of do more stuff to get noticed, right? Mm-hmm. So terrorism is almost something that happens often on the fringes of wider kind of social movements or periods of uh, contentious politics. Um, so the difference between de- uh, democracies that have terrorism and authoritarian regimes that have terrorism is that in democracies, it's usually small and isolated. It doesn't usually escalate into like a large-scale insurgency. Whereas in authoritarian regimes, when you see um, terrorism happen, it, it usually is part of a wider violent movement, like an insurgency. Um, so, you know, the best example of this is I always say, like, when's the last time you saw an environmental terrorist in Saudi Arabia? Never, right? You see them in, in democracies. Um, you don't see them in, in authoritarian regimes. If you see it in authoritarian regimes, it's part of a, a movement that's trying to overthrow the center. Um, and so you, you wrote this, and it was, you know, it was on sort of the other side of the equation, uh, mm-hmm. away from nonviolence. Um, were you, like, pretty, at that point, fixated on, or if you're going to study terrorism for your career? Mm-hmm. I mean, this is, you know, this is in the mid-2000s. Like, yeah. terrorism's the thing. Yeah, um, that was pretty much the plan. Yeah. And then, then you were, you got like a chance invitation to this seminar that you referred to. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so you met your uh, co-author Marie Stefan, 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 and you decided, you know, collectively you're going to look into this data. You're going to try to prove her assumption wrong. Yeah. basically is, is is what it was. Yeah. Um, so how did you sort of go about collecting this data? Like where? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it seems like a pretty rich history to try to to try to mine. Yeah, it was pretty brutal, actually. It took two years to collect the data. And um, we started, there There was a, a bibliography that came out in 2006, perfect timing, 
um, by uh, Trio, Howard Clark, April Carter, and, and uh, Michael Randall, who were experts in the study of nonviolent conflict. And they wanted to come out with a book that was just an annotated bibliography of everything that had ever been written about nonviolent resistance. So Sounds I, both fascinating and terrible at the same time. Right, exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. a, a, so much work, right? Yeah. But they were just trying to come up with some kind of aggregate resource. So it was great because I went through every one of those sources and identified uh, campaigns from them. Um, I also looked at protest databases, news reports, different books that had been written separately on the topic and went through the case studies that they'd identified. Um, so in the end, um, I then had this list of about 106 or so or 108 nonviolent campaigns that were for the overthrow of a regime um, for territorial independence through secession or through kicking out a foreign colonial um, occupier or a military occupation. And I omitted all of the cases of civil rights, environmental rights, labor rights, women's rights, because I was the skeptic and I wanted to compare only the hardest types of goals um, with the nonviolent and violent campaigns. So the violent campaigns are easy to find. I just mm -hmm. went to the Correlates of War data set, <laughs> got, yeah. got all the internal conflicts. Um, and so then when we had that list, we then circulated it to about a dozen experts and asked them if we'd left any campaigns out, especially failed ones. Um, and it turned out that we basically produced what you might call a consensus list mm -hmm. of 323 cases after that period. And what, uh, what years did these cover? 1900 to 2006. So what was the 1900? Uh, what were the earliest cases? Well, the earliest case of nonviolent campaigns that made it into the data set was Gandhi. Yeah. Um, but we're now, up, we're now backcoding some data that we, um, that we identified through other research um, and Probably like the Russian, the, the first Re Russian revolution will end up in there. That's the 1905 anti-Tsarist revolution um, that was mildly successful. Um, and, and that might end up being the first case in the data. What was the first post-Gandhi case? Or what um, It was the, yeah, so the, <laughs> I'm, I'm looking at the chronology in my mind. So yeah. uh, the, the one that comes right after Gandhi in, in 1919 is when that one starts, um, was the uh, 1922 to 1923, resistance to the French occupation of the Ruhrkamp Valley uh, by Germans. Explain. So, so explain that for, for those of us yeah. who don't know, including so, me. Yeah. <laughs> so basically there was um, the Ruhr Valley uh, was kind of contested territory um, after World War I. Um, it went back to Germany under the Versailles Treaty, but because of, I guess, um, Germany's inability to pay back war debt because of the economic situation uh, there, the French actually came in and, and reoccupied the Ruhr Valley, um, which is a primarily you know German-speaking uh, part of the the European continent, um, and it was also very rich in mines, and so you mostly had working-class Germans living there. Uh, and they staged all kinds of strikes and uh, demonstrations against the French occupation of, of the valley. And ultimately, um, it was pretty successful. Is there any evidence that they were influenced by Gandhi? Um, not that I know of. Gandhi was still um, not yet, I think, uh, visible on the global scene as much as he certainly was toward the end of the Quit India campaign. Um, I think that the Salt March, um, which was in the 30s, mm -hmm. is what really kind of put him on the map um, in that regard. And so how was it? I mean, 
that uh, groups like the, the this um, uh, German-speaking group in, in uh, French-occupied territory like knew what tactics to use. How do they come to, to, I mean, you know, Gandhi is sort of, you know, sets the bar. Gandhi obviously influences, like, the U.S. civil rights movement and has, like, you know, hugely influential to these movements around the world. But, mm -hmm. you know, if you hadn't heard of Gandhi, how mm -hmm. do you sort of know how to do these things? It's a good question. I mean, I, I think that uh, my friend Mary King often says that the earliest example she's found of this is actually um, a group of Egyptian slave workers uh, who carved into some stone that was found by an archaeologist friend of hers. Um, not enough bread and beer today. We won't work tomorrow. Um, you know, so so I think sometimes it, it it's something that's come fairly naturally. It's just that we didn't have a name for it before Gandhi called it civil resistance for the first time. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, uh, Henry David Thoreau, um, people call his pamphlet civil disobedience, although he never used those terms himself. But um, but basically, like, we, we just haven't had a conceptual framework for non-cooperation um, mm -hmm. and, and mass resistance until Gandhi put a name to it. But, but we do have examples of when it happened. Like, even the um, 10 years before um, the revolutionary war in the United States. I mean, tax evasion, um, boycotts of British imports to the colonies, um, you know, refusal to export um, goods to Britain, refusal to pay the stamp tax, refusal to pay a tea tax. I mean, what are those but methods of nonviolent action? Um, and they happened for the entire decade before the revolutionary war started and before even the first shot was fired from the uh, colonial um, rebels, uh, the colonies had essentially withdrawn fully from the British Empire through nonviolent action. In your data, have you found examples of uh, resistance movements that started out nonviolent but were co-opted or for whatever their own strategic logic opted for a more violent approach? Sure. Yeah, we see that. Um, certainly the, the first defiance campaign in South Africa um, was nonviolent, and then tr it turned to violence. It was an anti-apartheid mm -hmm. uh, campaign. Yeah. Turned to violence. Yep. Um, the ANC at least adopted armed struggle mm -hmm. um, after the Sharpeville massacre primarily. Um, but then you have cases like Syria today, um, which is a good example of that. And, you know, we deal with it in the data by basically segmenting those as separate campaigns that failed, and then a violent campaign came on in its place. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it can be very complex, obviously. You have, you know, sometimes these campaigns aren't unitary, so you have different factions uh, making arguments for different types of, of struggle and so forth. So if you're an autocrat and you don't want to be toppled by a um, nonviolent movement, presumably it's like in your interest mm -hmm. to provoke them to the point where they become violent. Yeah, um, I think or get them to be violent. Which I guess is yeah. probably what Assad did. I think it's very clear that that's a huge part of the strategy. That any autocrat would rather face a violent movement than a nonviolent one, and they do as much as they can to terrify people into thinking violence is their only option. And Assad, um, from the very beginning of the Syrian uprising, was making these kind of sectarian arguments and things about you know that these are Islamists and this, this really trying to threaten the population. Um, with the possibility that this could turn violent, um, certainly use terror tactics to um, to try to provoke people into self-defense violence that then ends up um, mm -hmm. kind of tumbling out of control. And, I mean, I, it seems that you would want to do, like, the most audacious things, too, like torture and, and as you said, terrorist violence to try to provoke that. So 
I mean, it's just like, a, it seems like obviously like a huge risk. I mean, it's always mm-hmm. a huge risk to, mm-hmm. um, to try to topple a regime, uh, particularly, you know, nonviolently. Mm-hmm. Uh, what does your like research say about when people are able to accept like a high level of risk to, to partake in these protests? Well, we don't really know. I mean, it varies so much case to case um, about the timing of that and, the, the, you know, the different types of barriers that exist to people's mobilization. The risk profile is a huge part of it. And, of course, um, I think that this the, the general sense is that whatever's going to happen today is going to be highly related to whatever happened yesterday, <laughs> right? So mostly we see stasis. Um, and these types of uprisings are really rare. Um, precisely because it requires a large proportion of the population to accept a level of risk, otherwise they wouldn't. That said, um, if the regime is so repressive that it's equally risky for people to not participate as to participate, well, then they have nothing to lose, and they're probably safer in numbers, mm-hmm. right? Um, so for for uh, autocratic regimes, they're always you know trying to find this balance of um, how how to basically keep people from mobilizing without making them so angry that they feel they have no other choice but to mobilize. Um, And I think that really for any regime trying to avoid a nonviolent campaign, the best advice is for them to increase their legitimacy by actually earning the right (laughs) to be in power. Mm -hmm. I always say no uh, legitimate country has anything to fear from a mass nonviolent campaign. Are there examples of, of autocrats doing that? Like bending uh, to the point that's sort of an acceptable to the to the movement. Um, I can't I'm, think of you know, many of them try to offer concessions, mm-hmm. um, but their main goal is to simply stay in power. You can make that assumption very safely that they just want to stay in power and they are willing to murder many people to do that. Um, so you're collecting your data from uh, 2006. You started in 2006, right? It was when you started to collect your data, right? On there. Mm-hmm. So uh, you said it took two years. So your what was your first like published? piece about this data set? Yeah, I I think actually the first published piece was an op-ed that Maria and I had in Open Democracy. um, And it was called Does Terrorism Work? Which was, maybe the title didn't totally represent the question we were asking. But um, but we then... Editors get to put whatever title. Right, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) But then we we published a piece in International Security. That was our first peer-reviewed. Right. um, uh, So what what kind of reaction did you get? You know... um, at first, I think it was, it, it's always been a, a overwhelmingly positive reaction, um, but just by surprising people. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I never thought that, for instance, our work would be read outside of academia. I don't know why I didn't think that, but um, but it's probably been read more outside of academia than within academia. Um, and then, you know, a lot of people were concerned within academia about uh, selection effects, which is just to what say... It's a, it's a process where basically people select a certain type of method because it's the one that's most likely to succeed. Uh, so basically, you're, you're not seeing success rates because that method worked. You're seeing people choose that method because they anticipate that it'll work. Um, so we deal with this actually in our book. We, we devote an entire chapter to the possibility that that's explaining these differential success rates. And we find actually very little support for that claim. Um, but, the, you know, when, when you're writing an article that has a word count limit, you can't deal with all the potential mm-hmm. critiques at once. Um, like, I guess in policy circles, it would seem that, like, your conclusion's a bit challenging. Yeah. If only because, you know, our you know, foreign policy is, is dominated by sort of the military side of the equation and there aren't, like, 
that many structures in the U.S. government in place to provide support for nonviolent civil resistance. Yeah, Or if there true. are, they're greatly like outnumbered by kind of military aid and military support we give to resistant movements or autocrats around the world. Right. So yeah. Have you felt any like pushback from sort of official policy circles? Yeah. I mean, I think when people misunderstand our argument, it's easy for them to push back. For instance, when they think that we're just talking about the fact that people being nonviolent is somehow morally superior, or if they think that we're saying um, that people being nonviolent will melt the hearts of their <laughs> dictatorial opponents, then it's easy to dismiss our findings. But we're not I arguing either of those. And if, if you sort of carefully went through our argument, you'd see that we're arguing that it's strategically advantageous. And it is that way because it imposed such costs on the autocrat that they're no longer able to rule, um, as opposed to that they decide they were wrong all along. And, <laughs> you know, that they're, 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 they're convinced by the moral the arguments, right? But, but I think, um, you know, generally we, we get a lot of people saying, okay, so what? Like, how do we, can we support these movements? And if so, how? And the answer to that is we don't know. I mean, we, our, our research didn't go so far as to evaluate the different instruments that states have at their disposal, um, other than um, financial support, which we did look at, and it had no clear effect on the success rates. And so, you know, it might be the case that states are just ill-suited to be the ones uh, to give support to these types of movements. It might be the case that states are in a better position to deal with their uh, counterparts in foreign governments and to try to buy time for movements or try to uh, coordinate defections or uh, try to prevent their counterparts from following an order to repress a population. But we know for sure that these campaigns can't be exported and they can't be imported, even though, you know, the Chinese government and the Russian authorities want us to believe that these are all Western conspiracies. Mm -hmm. We certainly found no evidence for that um, in a systematic sense in the data. In fact, you know, a lot of times um, direct government intervention in these movements through supporting them can sort of be the kiss of death mm -hmm. because yeah. it demobilizes the population to find that out. And it gives them like, you know, the, 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 the sense that maybe they're being co-opted by a foreign government or it gives yeah. them like the, the you know, an opponent could legitimately say you're being co-opted. So yeah. if, if governments aren't the answer, then I guess are like our NGOs or like, mm -hmm. you know, non-government actors the yeah. way to sort of advance sort of theories and tactics and share best practices among movements? Yeah, that may be the case. And uh, Maria and I are actually now putting our heads together. We're hosting a workshop here in, in oh, November nice. to go over a project proposal for how we might look at different types of actors, different types of support, and different timing of support to see whether it has an impact on the outcome. Um, the thing is that it's... A, a really difficult problem to study um, because we have to use counterfactual analysis to understand from historical cases whether they would have had the same outcome without international support mm -hmm. or with it. And so it's, it's actually, it, it pre presents inferential challenges that are even harder than the ones we've already tried to mm -hmm. overcome in our book. Um, and so we're, we're going to bring together about 20 um, academics, activists, and policymakers here in November to go over our proposed research design and just have them thrash it and yeah. uh, and come up with something that might be convincing toward the end. And if we can do that uh, with that group, then we'll submit a proposal to actually do the study. And it'll involve a lot of data collection for sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, this co-opted my last question, which is like, what are you up to next? But it's, I mean, that sounds like basically like a book of tactics, right? Like what tactics work? 
Yeah, and, that are available to external actors that would like to support nonviolent mm-hmm, movements mm-hmm. without manipulating them. And that's the hard part. I, would, I could just see that being so valuable to like you know, NGO groups that are interested. Like I would imagine, you know, there are enough like philanthropists and, and NGO groups out there that would be willing to like want to support this kind of this kind of work. Yeah, but it just doesn't exist. Right. Nobody's done the empirical research. We mm-hmm. there is a, a really useful resource called the Diplomat's Handbook for Democracy Development and Support. That's what I always recommend now um, to people that ask me about this. Yeah. Um, and it's what it is, it's, it's basically a case book. It features all the different types of support that diplomats actually have used mm-hmm. to support these movements. Um, but it doesn't sort of catalog them in a way that would lend itself to, you know, kind of a systematic empirical analysis about did it really help those movements or did that diplomatic support come to movements that are always already going to win anyway? So it didn't really have much well, impact. I want to I want to see this research. Yeah. Okay. Good. I'm, I'm good to know. Yeah. This will be great. Well, thank yeah, you. Of course. This is really interesting. Thank you so much. Yeah. My pleasure. Yeah. Thanks for coming down. Well, thanks all for listening. This was a super interesting conversation. I love it when these kind of counterintuitive propositions can be uh, empirically proven, uh, as Erica Chenoweth and her uh, research partner have done. So again, uh, check out her work. Um, thank you all for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Thank you.